and welcome along to Edie's Net Zero Navigators podcast, our spin-off podcast series focusing on the growing need for businesses to align their strategies with climate science and set net zero emissions goals. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and I'm going to be presenting the episode today. So a very warm welcome to you. We've been running this series since shortly after the UK set its net zero target in law for 2050, which was last year. Since that moment, more and more businesses and public sector organisations have been attempting to get ahead of the curve, strengthening their carbon and energy strategies and pledging to become net zero or carbon neutral well before the deadline. This series sees the ED team speaking with the trendsetters and trailblazers in the corporate climate movement. It gets insight on just how much work went into developing targets and supporting strategies. Each of these episodes features one in-depth interview with a business that has committed to a net zero strategy. And to mark Net Zero November 2020, our special month of themed content around Net Zero Live, we will be having a new episode every week. In last Friday's episode, I spoke with the London School of Economics's Head of Sustainability, Charles Jolie, about the university's plans to achieve carbon neutrality for this academic year and to become net zero by 2050 or sooner. He outlined how LSE was able to reduce emissions from direct operations by 38% from a 2005 baseline and also provided insight on how the university is now attempting to work with staff and students to accelerate progress. In this episode, we're speaking to VLUX's VP for Global Communications, Sustainability and Public Affairs, Ingrid Roymat. VLUX recently committed to become lifetime carbon neutral by 2041, which is the 100th anniversary for the company. This is a massive commitment with a lot of work behind the scenes and in terms of engagement too. So without further ado, here is our discussion in full. Well, hello, Ingrid. It's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Nice to see you again. Um, I know that we recently spoke for our Susty Talk series, but I know it's also your first time on the podcast. So for the benefit of everyone listening at home, um, it'd be great to hear a little bit about who you are, um, what you do at VLUX and what your sustainability career so far has been. Yeah, so my name is Ingrid Reumert and thank you very much for having me. Uh, I'm heading uh, the Department of uh, External Relations and Sustainability in the VLUX Group. We are a building component uh, manufacturer, so within the, the building industry, manufacturing a roof window with the global market leader there. Uh, and my responsibility is uh, external communication, is all, also all the legislative uh, efforts Right. Uh, that we do and then of course the sustainability and sustainability uh, strategy where we have just launched a new strategy towards uh, 2030 that we're going to talk about in a second. Mm-hmm. Fantastic and yeah obviously the key carbon component of this strategy is a commitment to become lifetime carbon neutral which we have covered and discussed um, recently but today I'm hoping to get a bit under the skin and behind the scenes um, of how you plan to, to reach reach that target. Yeah, so the lifetime carbon neutral uh, commitment is, is is a new concept for corporate action that focuses both on uh, reducing dramatically future 
carbon emissions, but not least also capturing our historical uh, carbon emissions. So it's a plan that takes both responsibility for our future and for our past emissions all the way back to when we were founded in, in 1941. And the aim is that at our 100 years anniversary in 2041, uh, we will become lifetime carbon neutral. So if I should go a little bit into depth with what, what is that really, how are we gonna, gonna mm -hmm. do that? Uh, the historical part there, we have um, entered into a partnership with WWF, 20 year long partnership. I think it's the longest partnership in the history of our, our company. Um, and they will, uh, on our behalf, develop a number of forest uh, projects in the developing countries in order to capture the equivalent of our historical carbon emissions in total 5.6 million tons uh, CO2. They will, and there we will focus on, of course, capturing the carbon, but also on biodiversity. Mm -hmm. which is often lost in the, the debate on climate change is, of course, the loss of nature, the, the hidden crisis around biodiversity. So that is the historical part, the past. And then with, with regards to the future, that is, of course, where the transformation of the company is. And that's where uh, we have a lot of hard work to do because we have set up uh, a goal of uh, becoming fully carbon neutral, so 100%. Uh, carbon neutral on scope one on one and two, our own operations, our energy supply. And then in terms of our supply chain, which is uh, the scope three, we have set a goal of 50%. And in particular, that part, the, the scope three reductions of 50%, that is going to require uh, some hard work mm -hmm. uh, there. And it, and it is so if you look at, a, at our company, we are, of course, a manufacturing company. 6% uh, of our total carbon footprint is scope one and two, and the 94% is in scope three. So, of course, that's also why it's been very important for us to include uh, a strong and ambitious target for scope three in our sustainability strategy, because that's where that we can really also have an impact through our, our suppliers and our product innovation. Mm -hmm. Of course, and when, when we talk about offsetting, a lot of the time, um, a lot of people see offsetting as something that is used to sort of shirk responsibility for reductions, but this is clearly a really um, robust plan. And you mentioned there the importance of working with WWF um, on this work to avoid some of some of these pitfalls. So why is that partnership so important? And for anyone that's listening that is looking to partner for net zero or carbon neutrality, what, what have you learned from this process, what advice would you give? So um, I think great ambitions and great plans often comes from, from the friction uh, of setting usually uh, uh, unlike partners together. And that's definitely what, what we have experienced and I have experienced personally, uh, because we've been discussing and, and talking with WWF for a year or a year and a half uh, on how we could uh, come up with a new and impactful uh, concept for corporate uh, action. And of course, putting a company and an NGO together, that's two very different worlds. Uh, but I believe that what we have come out with is, is uh, quite uh, extraordinary, but and definitely forward-looking in terms of both working with, with climate change and biodiversity. And, and, and I think what, what is uh, important there is, of course, the whole learning. 
and, and going to the, the UN SDGs, this is SDG uh, number 17, which is around the partnerships. Mm -hmm. and, and it's also the only SDGs which is quite, it's, it's quite different from the other 16 in the sense that it's more like a method uh, or a, the glue that, that uh, puts, holds together uh, the other SDGs. Um, so I think in terms of advice, I think definitely show, be, be open-minded, um, engage you know, into, into discussions and try to set a common ambition uh, where both parties uh, can, see themse can see themselves and both parties uh, feel like they're, they're definitely making an impact like, like we're doing with WWF. Mm -hmm. For a lot of companies that work with WWF, we've heard that the value is that they have sort of operations on the ground in a lot of countries and specific experts about biodiversity. Is that something that you guys were looking for? Yeah, definitely. I think that that's what WWF has, which is quite unique, is that they both have global expertise and are part of uh, global discussions on carbon capture, uh, science-based targets, etc. And then they have local presence. So they have boots on the ground and where WWF is working, they, they have been working for decades. Mm -hmm. So in, in terms of when, when you do forest projects in the developing world, developing countries, of course, there are uh, risks around uncertainty, that things don't go to plan. And there it's extremely important for, for a, a company like us or any company, I, I would imagine, that the partner that you're working with has high legitimacy, local presence, understand the local uh, conditions and also has a track uh, record of, of working with the, with the local communities on the ground. And, mm -hmm. and we believe that's the case with WWF. And then I think on, on top of that, what has been very important for us is that the forest projects that we engage in, they are developed from scratch uh, for Velux and they're concrete forest projects you could uh, go visit or maybe more likely fly over with a drone. Uh, so, so we're not buying into, you could see, a myriad of projects where we can't really follow a progress and have a, a, a quite a strict governance. Mm -hmm. I'm presuming that helps with combating double counting and things like that too. Exactly, exactly. And maybe, and, and, and just on, on the issue of the carbon credits there, it's also been very important for us that the carbon credits that we get, they are uh, given back to the countries in question, to their NDCs. So mm -hmm. we as VLOX do not account the carbon credits. We do not use them to deduct from our uh, future obligations. All our future emissions are done uh, without ca counting the carbon credits from the forest projects. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, I, I'd love to talk a bit more about the broader um, climate movement with you in a, in a moment. But before we move on, I think it's really important to talk about um, this difference of definition that runs through a lot of the commitments that we see. So Velux has chosen carbon neutrality. Um, how does a company differentiate that from net zero? Yeah, so so I know there's a lot of claims uh, claims out there and sometimes you could actually wish for a guide that something would make an authoritative guide of what does it all mean. I don't know if that's, that's uh, possible. And I've got, I also believe the reason why there's so many different claims is also that this is an evolving subject that we learn uh, all the time and also that expectations change from, from stakeholders and from the wider society. So, so um, I think what is maybe different here comparing to the net zero mm -hmm. uh, movement is that what we are trying to do looking forward is zero, it's not net. So it's more zero than net. <laughs> uh, 
and because um, we are not offsetting, we're not using our the carbon credits to to offset. Uh, and then on top of that, of course, we have the focus on the historical emissions and then biodiversity. But but I think we are all part of the same uh, movement. We're all looking towards the Paris Agreement and the 1.5 degree scenario, science-based targets, etc. Trying to see how we can we can make an impact. Mm -hmm. And and obviously this movement isn't just being led by businesses. We've talked a bit about the NGO piece here, but obviously policy um, here is massive. And I know that um, I know that Velux is headquartered in mainland Europe, and it does a lot of sales across the EU and the UK, which do have net zero targets. But what other policy supports are, would you like to see here? Yeah. And I think that's a key point you're mentioning there, that I think that as sustainability practitioners, we also have a responsibility for advocacy. So we're not just, you could say, staying within our own business value chain, but really also advocating for change uh, towards policymakers. And we've put that as a top target uh, for, for in our sustainability strategy to continue working with sustainable buildings, which is within uh, within our field. Um, so I think what what is important that policymakers they can uh, they can do um, have massive impact if they want, <laughs> and of course it, it, it's in terms of setting long term targets for society at, uh, as a whole, like the EU has done, the UK has done, um, my own ho home country Denmark has done, and then it is of course looking at making sector targets for. Uh, the most polluting um, industries or the industries with the largest CO2 uh, footprint. And looking at, at the industry that, that uh, we operate in, the built environment, we have around 35, 36% of, of CO2 emissions coming from the built environment. 30% mm -hmm. of all waste comes from the built environment. So by, by uh, making long-term plans um, for, for that area as a whole, looking at life cycle costs, changing the way we use materials, a circular economy, etc. Uh, policymakers can have a, a massive change, and and we're we're really happy to see that the EU has just launched part of the European Green Deal, the renovation wave, mm -hmm. a few weeks ago, which puts uh, buildings at the center of the green recovery in a hopefully post-COVID um, situation. So, and that is all around renovating existing buildings. So, putting. Uh, lifting them up to a, a modern standard and with that decreasing their environmental footprint. Mm -hmm. And obviously we, we've talked about the shared drive to get to net zero, but some countries really haven't got there yet. Some of them, including places where Velux sells and the obvious one is is the US. So what, yeah. what does policy engagement look like in areas which aren't leading on this? Yeah, I, th I think a lot of uh, People like myself who work within the, the climate change sustainability field are really crossing our fingers. Uh, we'll be crossing our fingers on the 3rd and 4th of November with the American uh, election, maybe a few weeks after that when they're counting the votes. But definitely, uh, we hope that the United States will get back into and taking what I think they could do a leading position within uh, climate change. We have, of course, lately seen China coming out. Uh, they have a, uh, a target towards uh, 2060. And, and also a few days ago, Japan. Mm -hmm. So also India has, has um, made commitments. So hoping that then other large companies, uh, sorry, countries in the world will then take the lead together. The EU will, will strengthen uh, its target uh, as well, both towards 2030 and, and in order to achieve 2050. Mm -hmm. 
yeah, I think if recent months have been anything to go by, the next couple of months are going to be very busy ground for announcements. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's very positive because I think when 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 this whole pandemic started rolling, there was a lot of concern within sustainability circles that now we were going to be pushed back and mm-hmm. that sustainability would would no longer be on the agenda because everyone would be focusing on growth and jobs and, of course, the, the health uh, crisis. But I'm, I'm really pleased to see that I think what's happening is actually the opposite, that, that policymakers and, of course, industries, companies at large understand that a recovery has to be green and that there is a, a moment now which is uh, maybe historic. We have a chance to, to restart or make a green uh, re- restart uh, that we should definitely uh, grab. Mm-hmm. Well, you've touched on it a bit there, but for this series, in light of our event and content in November, um, we're asking our speakers to get a bit more personal and ask about how the net zero movement and these changing pieces of legislation and resulting business trends have changed changed sort of what you do day to day and what your remit and focus area is. Yeah, so so I, I definitely think the net zero uh, movement is extremely important because it is important to keep momentum and, and not to go to the very short-sighted uh, growth solutions now after the pandemic, but really uh, link recovery with the, with the green uh, transition. And there I believe the net zero movement is, is very important also just in terms of knowledge sharing and, and, and keeping, keeping the focus uh, there. I think that that uh, for me personally and, and for the company I, I work in, the, the COVID situation has uh, put an extra focus on the built environment right. uh, because the built environment is, uh, is important in terms of the green transition with the energy consumption and CO2 emissions, but it's also a great sector to create growth fast, to create local jobs uh, very fast and, and also jobs for SMVs and for for younger people to, to tackle youth unemployment. So we have actually experienced a, quite an interest from policymakers in a number of countries of how can we link uh, a recovery to the green transition and what kind of role uh, can um, the building environment play and not least why and how can we make our buildings more healthy. Mm-hmm. Because now that people have spent so unfortunately have spent so much time indoors and in their homes, they've also become aware of the importance of healthy buildings and, and that buildings are, you know, filled with daylight, fresh air, etc. That how important that is for our health and, and well-being. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like for you that everything is sort of intersecting a little bit more and those intersections are becoming clear to other people too. Yes, I, I, I think so. Of course, there is also negatives. I know that our partner, going back to WWF, they're very focused on that the deforestation rate is increasing in some countries uh, because people are losing their jobs and maybe they're out there doing more you know, illegal logging, etc. So, of course, there's a lot of negative uh, consequences also for, for, for biodiversity. And I think that it's maybe too early to, to say exactly what, what kind of effects will the pandemic have have had, but but I, I remain and we remain optimistic in, in terms of uh, building b- uh, back better. Great. Well, I know we'll touch base on this and other topics in a couple of months time, but for now, that's all the questions we have time for. So thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you very much. Speak to you soon. Bye bye. 
So thank you to Ingrid from Velux there and Edie will be keeping an eye on the company's next sustainability announcements. In fact, Ingrid is going to be speaking at our Sustainability Leaders Forum in February 2021, so make sure you watch this space. Of course, the Net Zero movement has been gathering pace outside of the walls of Edie and of Velux. So with that in mind, it's time for our Net Zero news in brief. Over the past week, there have been some very big developments in the Net Zero conversation, even amid the global pandemic. So I'm going to pull out the top three news stories for you now to bring you up to speed. Firstly, I have to start with the fact that Joe Biden won the election. The US formally withdrew from the Paris Agreement earlier this year after Trump set the process in motion back in 2019, but Biden has said that he will recommit to the accord as soon as possible after he assumes office. By this time next year, the US could have a net zero target. Boris Johnson tweeted earlier this week to say that tackling climate change is now a shared priority for the US and the UK. The second piece of news I want to highlight is the fact that professional services giant KPMG has committed to becoming a net zero company and sourcing 100% renewable electricity globally by 2030. It will halve its emissions and then work to offset the rest. The commitment covers the company's global operations which span more than 140 countries and they cover emissions from all scopes. Last but by no means least, the British Retail Consortium, also known as the BRC, announced that more than 40 new businesses have signed its collaborative initiative developing a net zero roadmap for the retail sector. The roadmap will run through to 2040 and will take into account all key sources of emissions, like stores, logistics and raw materials. New participants include Burberry, John Lewis & Partners, TK Maxx, Wilco and Wix. All of the UK's major supermarkets are also taking part. Before I sign off for this episode, I'd like to take a moment to thank everyone who came along to Net Zero Live earlier this week. This event was held virtually for the first time, but honestly, it runs super smoothly and we had so many great conversations. We are hoping to have the video recordings out to everyone who attended very soon so that you'll be able to catch up. But in the meantime, fear not, because we will have lots more Net Zero November content. We're just about out of time and I'd like to thank you for joining me on our Net Zero Navigators podcast. If your organisation has a Net Zero story, please let us know by emailing me. The address is newsdesk at fav-house.com. And in the meantime, the rest of the team will be back with our usual sustainable business covered podcast next month. Please do subscribe and follow the ED podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes or Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. For more Net Zero news, the ED website and newsletter will be your go-to. Our sign-up button for the newsletter is in the top right-hand corner of ed.net. But until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Goodbye. <laughs>